conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is back and we have a brand new guest on. Drew Deach is here to discuss the 2018 film Halloween. You know, there are so many, we need to specify which one we are talking about. (laughs) And Drew, you have been a guest on Chat Cemetery. The episode is not out yet, but you know, we recorded it a while ago at this point, a couple months ago, I think, in my attempt to get ahead on that. And I am very glad you also volunteered yourself for Welcome to Geekdom episodes here because there are plenty of horror movies that I either have watched and haven't discussed on here or have yet to watch because I'm really bad at watching movies in a timely manner. I'm getting better at it with AMC A list here, but you know, Halloween was something I actually was able to go to the theaters and watch because of having that subscription service. So that is very handy, especially as of late. And I think with this being a direct sequel, it was important to sort of talk about this one. And I do plan on doing the original as well. And then everything in between, I'm kind of like, eh, maybe, maybe I'll get to those. Yeah, I mean, I, I confess to have seen all of the Halloween movies multiple times. Um, it's it's probably not the best horror franchise, but it's it might be the one I'm the most familiar with. Right. Uh, because the original movie is absolutely one of my all-time way up their favorite movies not just favorite horror movies just i love the first film and it's interesting with halloween 2018 because this is clearly a, a concept you know the, the halloween's all often seen as the movie that kicked off the slasher boom of the 80s you know it came out in 78 and then two years later friday the 13th comes out and pretty much rips it off and really gets things going but halloween has always had a classier air about it and and a almost a prestige level especially in the horror community and halloween 2018 you know that this was a very interesting direction for them to take because the original movie had been rebooted uh in 2007 i believe by rob zombie uh and then there was also a sequel halloween h2o in 1998, right. which was 20 years after the original movie, which was the first time Jamie Lee Curtis came back since uh, the original sequel, Halloween 2, and had a had a very strong hand in where she wanted to take the Laurie Strode character and what she wanted to say about it and, and in regards to how we deal with trauma and how we carry with it with us and how it shapes our lives. And a lot of those same through lines are present in Halloween 2018, but in a very, very different way. Absolutely. And I think what appealed to me with this movie was the fact that you had the Blumhouse name attached to it because I wasn't super familiar with this company until I watched Get Out. I may have seen some other things they did and not realized it at the time, But with Get Out, I was like, okay, I dig this kind of horror thriller movie. And then I saw the trailer for Halloween and I was like, okay, you know, 
I remember watching the original as a kid, probably earlier than I should have. I'm sure I had gone over <laughs> to a friend's house for Halloween and we kind of just put on movies that we normally wouldn't get to watch at our own house. <laughs> and, you know, that stuck with me all of these years, even though I hadn't really revisited the movie or gone and sought out the other, you know, what is it, nine movies or something like that at this yeah. point. And <laughs> so when I saw this and I saw that Jamie Lee Curtis was behind it, and we'll get into the casting here in a moment, it just made me so excited for a horror movie like this to be hitting the big screen in 2018. And the fact that it is a direct sequel, I was like, okay, I am very interested to see what they do with this. Because even though people did go see all of those other Halloween movies, I feel like this one had the opportunity to be better than most of those. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Blumhouse and, and Blumhouse is kind of, be I kind of call Blumhouse now the, uh, the marvel of horror because yeah. everybody's like just give it to Blumhouse they'll do it correctly <laughs> um and and in a way i find it interesting because Blumhouse has a great balance where they have these kind of prestige pictures like get out or even i would call halloween one of their prestige pictures because it was a uh, an already established franchise that they got to play with and you know yeah. now just just recently it's been announced that Universal is going to hand them their their catalog of classic monsters. So they clearly have an understanding and a love and appreciation for the genre. But they also put out pretty down the line horror movies like they, they had like Truth or Dare. Right. Uh, I think last year. So they're not just prestige stuff. They do it all. And I respect that. And I respect that with Halloween they clearly wanted to make something that was reverential to the original film, but also was able to follow its own path stylistically, that it wasn't going to just be a fan servicey retread, that it really stands on its own merits in terms of directorial style and intent and mood while having the the correct parts of DNA that made the original so classic. One of the other things I noticed, too, is that they didn't go over the top with this. You know, the budget was very, very small, given the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis is in this movie. The budget was around 10 to 15 million, and it made over 250 million at the box office. And what it made is essentially a budget for a Marvel movie. You know, <laughs> sometimes less, depending on which Marvel movie it is. So, you know, I think when you have movies like this and Get Out and even something like A Quiet Place, I really like that sort of budget range for horror movies because you can still do so much with it as long as you aren't going all out with some crazy CGI idea that needs to be done. I am very much here for this resurgence of the mid-budget movie yeah. because for a long time it was one extreme or the other it's like we're either making this for one to five million dollars or 75 to 200 million there there was a period of time in in the 2000s where that was pretty much every wide release movie fell somewhere within that budget range and right it, it's unfor it was unfortunate because with such extremes i think kind of the the critical extremes 
followed that. And Blumhouse has figured out this really nice, perfect niche where they're like, this is what we can budget. It means we'll be able to get good talent and good production value out of a relatively uh, cheaper you know, bottom line. But the most important thing is that we're going to hire people, you know, directors and writers who have a passion for this genre and have some real skill apparent. I mean, you know, it's so bizarre to me that what is probably the best Halloween movie since the original is directed by David Gordon Green and written by Danny McBride. These guys are primarily known as you know, comedy, and they right. completely got how to approach this from that kind. Because, because so many times with comedy, you have to come at it from a, a low budget perspective, and I think that actually makes makes them kind of perfect for approaching horror. Exactly. To touch on the casting real quick here, what do you think about the fact that they? built up this story with Jamie Lee Curtis that I think maybe a lot of us weren't expecting. They surrounded her with cast members like Judy Greer as her daughter, and you have Will Patton as Officer Hawkins, and you can tell he's one of those characters who has sort of been around for a while. He's like, oh boy, this is not good. (laughs) There's a real great generational approach to this where there is kind of the old guard like like Jamie Lee and Will Patton uh, who who know of the evil that's out there in the world there's a kind of theme going through the movie where the older generation is trying to tell the younger generation look things are going to be bad and you're going to have to fight this like it's not something you can ignore and bury you need to be ready for the evils of the world, because they're going to come at you when you least expect it. And, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, she's royalty. Like, there's no denying that at this point. Like, she is royalty to horror fans, to just, you know, as an actor, she's pretty much consistently great in everything I've ever seen her in. Right. And I think what's really fascinating about this movie and the way that they approach her character uh, of Laurie Strode and, and Jamie Lee's performance of it is that in a way they start to shape her at the beginning of the film as she is letting this trauma so much consume her life that she's taking on the traits of Michael Myers. And that's really kind of a, a, a bold decision uh, early in the movie. There's a, a reference to the first film in which, Lori's granddaughter is sitting in class and she looks out the window and she sees Lori standing outside the school. That is what Michael does to Lori in the first movie. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay, this is this is making a correlation between these characters and that Lori's decision to let Michael consume her life has, you know, it's a it's a battle not with monsters lest you become one kind of thing. And I really, I, Jamie Lee in this movie, not only does she get to do kind of the thing that I think is more broadly audience appealing and, and do kind of the Sigourney Weaver, Ellen Ripley and aliens kind of, you know, you know, Linda Hamilton and Terminator two type thing. But my favorite moment for Jamie Lee in this movie in terms of performance and character is she is sitting outside 
the facility where Michael Myers is going to be transferred from, where he's going to be transferred to, that's that's it. Like, he's going to be locked up forever. And she sits out there, and the the soundtrack is swelling with the with hints of the Halloween theme and the, the siren alarm that's going off signaling the transfer. And she's sitting there watching him get taken out, and she's got a gun, and she just starts to break down. And for just a couple of seconds out of her peripheral vision she sees the shape and I'm, and the way she plays it, that, that scene is probably the best emotional exploration of that character in any of the Halloween films. Oh, absolutely. What I think helps too, is the fact that they make this feel so realistic too. You know, we have people like the Ted Bundy's of the world and there are essentially real versions of Michael Myers out there, maybe not with the exact mask or anything like that, but these kinds of people do exist. And then you have victims like the one that Jamie Lee Curtis plays in Laurie Strode, and they react differently to these things. So to see her take this performance to this whole other level that maybe we couldn't have possibly predicted when the original movie ended you know we didn't really know how she was going to carry this with her all of these years until we got this sequel and i think that's something that they did really well too i didn't know what to expect going into this i was like you know obviously this would have an impact on someone on anyone really if this happened to them and you sort of just see how much it has not only worn her down over the years but how much of a wall she's had to build up and her house in the middle of nowhere is just this insane death trap for anyone who <laughs> isn't her uh, it's this amazing fortress and and what gets revealed in the movie like you said that it's 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 a trap like it's something she's been planning for her whole life it's it's a sad take on the character what's interesting is that in in Halloween H2O they do a very different take of this where she's kind of reinvented herself. She's a, a teacher in like a California private school and she's got a new name and she just tries, she pretty much just tries to ignore everything about what happened to her in the original movie. And of course it ends up coming back again. She has to confront it. That's one exploration of trauma is people who bury it and how it continues to kind of inform their their decisions whether they like it or not but i think the more interesting take is halloween 2018 where she has embraced the trauma so much she's gotten so close to it that she almost can't see the forest for the trees and right. even though in the end of the movie she is proven 100 percent right like i knew i knew michael was going to break out i knew this was going to happen again there's also that great scene where uh she and will Patton are kind of having a confrontation when she's like, I know this is Michael. And she says, you know, I prayed that he would break out. And he says, why? She says, so I could kill him. And of course in the trailers, that's where they left it out. Cause it's like, Ooh, that's a badass moment. But then yeah. Will Patton's line right after it was, that was a stupid thing to pray for. It's like, yeah, he's right. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's much more complex than I think for, from a character perspective than I think people were, really expecting going in. I think that shows you the two different ways to react to this because Will Patton as Officer Hawkins, he's been in that town 
for a very long time too. You know, he is someone who understands what is happening and he doesn't want to have to relive that all over again if Michael gets out, whereas Lori wants to put an end to her own suffering because of Michael. You know, if he's dead, there's no way he can come back from that. Yeah, unfortunately, to do that, she has to buy into, but that means Michael's going to be out. People are going to die. Like, that. That that's kind of the fallout of her wish. And even so that it, it uh, impacts her own family directly uh and and that this is a trauma that ends up having to be passed down to them and and i think that i i will say i i love 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 judy greer and will watch her in pretty much anything she does i think her character as laurie's daughter gets a little bit of a short shrift in the script i don't think we spend either enough time with her or the right kind of time with her to make her arc feel quite as successful as Laurie and Laurie's granddaughter. Yeah, she's sort of that in-between between the granddaughter and Laurie because she obviously wants Laurie to stay away for a reason, but it isn't really until she shows up at Laurie's house that we see why. And I feel like that is something that definitely could have been explored more but real quick here I don't know if we can talk about this movie without talking about the podcasters because that is something that <laughs> definitely goes to modernizing this movie because it's absolutely something that would happen today we see it with podcasts like Atlanta Monster and now that same group of people is working on a podcast about the zodiac so there's this fascination with serial killers that I don't think will ever go away just because of how differently their minds work from everyone else's. And you can tell that these podcasters are in over their head right away. Most of these people aren't going and necessarily talking to the killers, or if they do, it's over the phone. They're not trying to talk to them in person or anything like that so that they know their faces and can come after them when they inevitably escape in a fiction movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the podcasting angle is the easiest kind of in for a modern audience because yeah. it's it's something they understand about, oh, true crime podcast, true crime's really big, but it's also... A, a very clever way to dole out exposition early in the movie to anybody. Like I'm sure there are plenty of people who saw this movie and have never seen a Halloween movie that this was the first one they ever saw. And that entire structure of having these podcasters investigating the case gives you a very natural way of catching the audience up to what, what information they need to know going into this story. And I think it's all handled very well. And I, I, I love, and it, it kind of threw me the first time I saw it, the opening scene of this movie, which jumps right in with the podcasters going to the sanitarium and trying to interview Michael and then yeah. showing him his mask. Just the build of that and everything was so good. And I like that one of the things I think the later Halloween sequels missed about the original movie is the the level of myth that surrounds Michael Myers. 
he is a human, but he's also the shape. There's something supernatural about him. It's not something that you can pin down with any kind of direct mythology. But, you know, John Carpenter, when he originally made Halloween and has talked about Michael Myers, he's always described Michael Myers as an evil wind that just blows through town. And it's spooky, that opening with them showing the mask. And then all of a sudden, all of the inmates freaking out and the dogs barking are like, this is there's something else here. Right. And I love that feeling. Let's actually dive into the myth of the character a little more here, because you see 40 years later that this is still such a big phenomenon for the town, especially once he escapes. And you still have you know, that abandoned house too, which I think is a huge testament to how the entire town feels about not only Michael Myers, but where he grew up. No one wants that house, you know? (laughs) Why would they kind of? But yet it's something that happens all the time because when you sell a house, you have to, I think up to so many years have to disclose what happened in the house, especially if there was a death or a murder or anything like that. And it's definitely something that will turn people off, especially with this being a smaller town from the looks of it. I know, I believe it's filmed out here in Pasadena. That's sort of where the exteriors for some of the houses are from, which, you know, that's not a small town, but the houses sort of give off that the houses sort of give off that vibe at least because they're so old and you can really see just how the town has aged with it in these shots in particular well i i am kind of a sucker and and you know talk kind of relating this back to stephen king a little bit even i love the idea of the small american town with the dark secret with yes. that that evil thing that's at the heart of what we perceive as perfect Americana. That's always fascinated me because it's something we refuse to escape as a culture. Like we, as much as our art explores it, everybody still wants to believe in Main Street USA and and that whole concept. And it's like that, that that's never been real. There's always been seedier things and darker things. And Michael Myers is this kind of, I think, the perfect culmination of that in a, in a mythic sense because he's a monster without motive. There aren't human motivations to him. He is just, he's, he's a force of nature, the most evil kind possible. And I love that this movie acknowledges that even so much so that you know John Carpenter as well as his uh, son Cody Carpenter and their their bandmates uh, got together to do the score for this and if you read the score tracks the opening scenes of the movie where Mike before Michael has gotten his mask back it's always stuff like Michael kills Michael kills again or the names of the tracks but once he gets that mask back he's the shape the shape returns and I love that. I love kind of making this modern American monster that, you know, th- that ha- that we can never truly understand the evil behind those eyes. That's so fascinating to me. And I think that what Halloween 2018 gets so right that all the other sequels never got onto is not explaining that, like purposely 
obfuscating that and just saying like, this is just what he is. It is just an evil thing and we have to do our best to try and conquer it. We'll never understand it. Yeah, it's one of those things where, again, you can sort of feel the realistic part of this story because when you think about where certain killers have grown up and how people not necessarily idolize them i'm sure there are those people which you know (laughs) probably people you should stay away from but (laughs) there's just this fascination there and people will go visit the places these killers lived and try and get inside their heads in a way that you know the fbi is supposed to do because it's their job and i think with michael myers that myth is still very much alive even before he breaks out because you have you know i imagine lots of kids daring other kids to go up to the house or go in the house or what have you and it's sort of this thing that i think is a staple in horror stories and like you said sort of hearkening back to stephen king that's something that's prevalent in salem's lot you have this big scary house that was abandoned for years and years until someone moved in and even then there was still this sense of hey you know i dare you to go check it out mm-hmm. yeah well, i love it's they play it off as kind of a cute continuity nod to fans in the movie where Lori's granddaughter are, is with her friends and they're talking about you know oh what didn't some wasn't michael myers her brother and she's like no that's just something somebody made up it's like oh that's a cute continuity not for for nerds about the second movie but it also sets up this idea of like oh people like kids 40 years later still know about this and talk yeah. about it like like the evil town legend which is great and and i even, i really like in that scene where again it feels kind of meta in a sense where the one kid is like you know he just he just killed four or five people it's why it's not that big of a deal and you know with other stuff that's going on today and that approach of saying like oh there's always worse things going on it's like okay i don't think we should be quantifying these events that way yeah uh and don't worry you'll pay for your comment later and and you know, moralistic slasher fashion. But uh, I like that it's saying, no, this, no matter how relatively, quote, small this seems in comparison to everything else that happens in the world, this was still an important thing that's affected this town, that's affected the, the people who remember it, that continues to get passed down. This This legacy of trauma is what I think is at the core of Halloween 2018. And I think is the stuff that gives it its strongest thematic resonance. I'm absolutely in agreement with you on that because it just feels like it has seeped into this town to the point where even generation after generation, they're going to know about it. And even if the story might change over those years, like you said, the comment about the brother and everything and it's one of those things where you just have to live with it no matter who you are because you live in this town and it's such a small town, not necessarily where everyone knows everyone extremely well, but it has that feeling to it. And it's one of those things where because of how fascinated people are with 
killers like Michael Myers, real or fictional, I'm sure there are some people out there who kind of wish they lived in a town like that because it would just <laughs> yeah. bring them, you know, something extra to their life, even though it could be terrifying at times, like when he does escape. We have a fascination as as humans and just as a culture with the dark side. I mean, that's all, you know, that's always going to be there. And what I've always loved about Michael Myers as a really a concept, because he he's not truly a character. He is a, a being. What I've always loved about him is he kind of he is the perfect example of the ultimate evil that, that is this unknowable thing, you know, that that right. will never truly understand. And we want to. And, and in this movie, I like that it acknowledges that he had there's the character of Dr. Sartain, who's been watching over Michael uh, for years and is just so intent on like, I just, I want to understand him. I want to know, I want to get him to speak because Michael never speaks. And I, I want him to say something so that I can know what he is. And to the very end that is denied. And I think that's kind of a powerful statement on you're never going to know the true heart of evil, but it's always going to fascinate you. And if, if, if you let yourself, you can become consumed by that desire and end up possibly falling into that void yourself. Yeah. One other character I want to mention quickly here is the fact that, you know, Dr. Sartain is the, a former student of Dr. Loomis, who was in the original. So they definitely knew what they were doing when they wanted to keep this continuity going in a way that made perfect sense. You know, who else would have taken over as mm -hmm. Michael's psychiatrist? It's going to be someone who already had this connection, whether they wanted it or not, is another story. And, you know, he is too egotistical for his own good. And I don't know who thought that transferring Michael Myers would be a great idea, but that was a very, very dumb idea. <laughs> right. Well, I don't know how... Um spoiler friendly you want to be on this just go for all the spoilers it's been a while people have had lots of time <laughs> so yeah i think i think it's long enough and if, if anybody out there you know see this movie um so yeah dr sartain ends up being the one who's aiding in michael's escape and is clearly wanting him you know facilitates his escape right. so that he can study him and so i'm sure he just kind of made up some you know, BS reason of why he needed to transfer him. So he's like, I got to be on that bus so I can help him break out. Um, which is, is again, I appreciate from a script writing position of, okay, we're going to set up this character who we, Lori literally says to him, you're the new Loomis. So anybody with any kind of familiarity with the franchise or even just the familiarity of what's presented in this movie is like, okay, well, this guy is, some kind another guardian another protector uh of of what michael can do but then of course the switch being oh well no actually he's bad and he's trying to get michael to do these things because he thinks seeing michael in his element will you know inform him of some new information about why michael is the way he is that it will get michael to speak and and like when i alluded to it when 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 michael crushes his head 
And the last thing Sartain says to him, looking up at him on the ground, is just say something, Michael. And Michael just crushes his head. It's like, that's perfect. That's a great mission statement of, nope, we don't, we don't want you to know anything about Michael because as soon as you start trying to explain the evil, it's going to demystify it and it's going to take yeah. away the element that truly makes Michael Myers scary. I never wanted to know anything deeper about Michael Myers with either the first original movie or this one. And I imagine I would still feel the same with all of the movies in between as well. But it's just one of those things where he's a killer and he had his little spree and it's over now. What else could you possibly want to know about him? There are so many other killers that you could go and study who will happily talk to you. Why is this one so important for, you know, your own ego that it would be worth putting the entire town at risk because it's not just Lori that he's going to go after. Obviously that's sort of the end game for him because she's the one who got away and he was able to, you know, kill all of her friends or, you know, people who we thought were her friends. It's high school, who knows? (laughs) And, you know, it's just this thing that's been eating away at both of them for the last 40 years, I would imagine, even though he's not going to express that. It's like, all right, she's the one who got away. So we are going to end this. And I don't think Michael is necessarily expecting what he finds. But I think at the same time, maybe he's not that surprised that he had this kind of effect on her. Well, what what I love, and I'll bring up H2O again, because uh, in H2O, Michael very actively is searching for Lori. He's going to places okay. to to get information to like hunt her down. Uh, but in Halloween 2018, it's much more like the original movie in that Michael Myers doesn't really have a, a direct agenda. He is just this force. And and there are there are rules that you can kind of infer. For example, Michael's original crime that he committed was when he was a child and i think he for the most part you know he doesn't hurt children you know there's there's instances in this movie uh when he's out and everybody's trick-or-treating where he runs into children uh famously i think from this movie now is uh he's in the house of a victim and he's walking through and we start hearing a baby crying and everybody when i saw in the theater just started you could feel the tension like is he gonna kill the baby and I was like, oh, this is good. But no, he's not because right. he has this, you know, unspoken kind of rule set that, you know, what was surprising is early in the movie when he breaks out, he does kill a a kid, a kid who's probably maybe about like 13 or so. But the kid also has a gun like he is in some way on a level enough playing field with Michael that he's like, all right, you're fair game. Um but but even so, in this movie, it's not like Michael breaks out and immediately just goes straight to killing Lori. They just end up crossing paths. And as soon as he sees her, he's like, oh, OK, yeah, like you and me, we're doing this. Um, and I love that. He does kill Allison's friend, too. I mean, he you know, they're high school age. So I feel like that's a little different. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's the younger kids he's more protective of. 
Yeah, no, the the the, the very little kids and stuff yeah. like that. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's like if 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 you've hit puberty, like Michael's, like okay, like I, you're you know you know enough to get out you're of this fair situation. Game. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, talking about because this is a sla- I, I this is a slasher movie, and people are going to want the base pleasures that come with the subgenre. And I'm I'm so impressed by Halloween that that it can be a much deeper movie than just that, but it also delivers on the very kind of, you know, checklist things you want out of a movie like this, which is, you know, f- interesting kills and and good scares and atmosphere. And I love 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 the way Green decides to frame Michael in this movie so many times uh, to really make him feel like a specter. Yeah. The, the main one, and I think the one that kind of stands out for me is the sequence on the neighbor's lawn with the motion sensor lights. Yeah. Oh, that, that, (laughs) that entire sequence just, it was so unnerving. It's played, you know, with no music and the lights going on and off and he continues to move and be in different places. It's, it was one of my favorite experiences in the movie theater last year. You could just hear everybody squirming in their seats like, oh, it was great. Absolutely. There's such a big deal about how horror movies are filmed, too, I think. And even if you go back and watch the one from 40 years ago, you're going to have some element of cheesiness to it because it was the late 70s. You know, movies weren't too terribly fantastic unless you had a massive budget at that point, I would venture to say. And this is something that, like you said, that mid-level budget, you can do so much with it as long as you aren't trying to CGI a ton of things, like I mentioned earlier. And the practical effects in this just amplify the movie so much and they don't look nearly as bad as they did 40 years ago so I think that's something that even though a lot of people love that original movie this one was able to take it and modernize it in a way that didn't feel too modern you know you have the podcasting aspect which you wouldn't have had back then but they stick with those practical effects and I think that's something that helps movies age a lot better too you know you can go back and watch the Star Wars movies and they don't look horrendous the entire time because they use so many costumes and practical effects and those just hold up better and I think you can say the same for the Halloween movies yeah it's so interesting because the original Halloween considering its notoriety is the the granddaddy of all the slashers it's not a gory movie there's pretty much there's very little to no effects in the movie and and it's that whole kind of low budget approach where we don't have a lot of money so how are we going to make this work and it 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 causes filmmakers to usually be inventive in the best of ways um but it's also i really think it comes down to directorial and uh cinematographer eyes because you have John Carpenter and Dean Cundey as the the DP on the original who, you know, Dean Cundey would go on to shoot a bunch of stuff for Spielberg. And and they understand, like, look, we don't have a lot of money, so we have to make the style be kind of a character in the movie. I mean, that, that movie famously opens with a first-person POV shot of Michael as he commits his first murder, um, which now is just seen as incredibly cliched and part of the 
the slasher subgenre, but that was radical to put the audience in the eyes of the killer uh, for, for the, and then to twist reveal that this is a kid doing it. And what I love about Halloween 2018 in that respect is it does not feel beholden to the stylistic choices of the 1978 Halloween. It, it really goes its own path. I mean, the, the violence in this movie is brutal uh, to a point that's in the best of ways, uncomfortable. Yeah. It's also interesting. And, and me and my, my friend Travis talked about this on, on our podcast, the way that the movie frames its violence is mostly different between men and women. Not all of them. There's, there's one in particular, but uh, a lot of the shots that involve violence against men, you see it all. Like it's very up close and gory and brutal. But then for example, when, um, when the female podcaster gets strangled to death, it's all shot at a low angle underneath the bathroom stall. When the one babysitter gets stabbed to death, we only, we never see any kind of contact with the Mm -hmm. knife. It's just looking at Michael it feels intentional because it keeps cropping up again and again in the movie. But it also, I think it's great because if, if the movie was nothing but a cavalcade of gore gags, I think it would feel kind of cheaper. It wouldn't feel quite as impacting. And, and a lot of the times we don't even see the violence happen. For, for example, uh, the babysitter's boyfriend we don't actually see him get killed. He just runs into the house. And then later when uh, I think the Will Patton comes into the house, he's just impaled on the wall. And it's like, oh, man, like I, I like not having to see how everything goes down, but just seeing the aftermath and being like, wow, this guy is a force. Exactly. I think because the women maybe aren't able to fight back as much as the men, which obviously Lori is the big exception for that. She's ready to fight back. Maybe, you know, in a way they're sort of doing the women a courtesy of not being completely annihilated in front of the audience. And I don't even know if that would necessarily be a courtesy because we know it's happening. We're just not seeing it. It's still horrifying and and effective, but I I think it's in kind of a bigger summation of, of that argument is that if you look at the response to slasher movies, especially during their boom in the eighties, and and a lot of those movies aren't good, but people have an affinity for them. They have a, a, a reputation, whether it's true or not of violence against women and being misogynistic or, you know, just being a male response to women in society at the time and feeling like, Oh, that, that, it feels like a, a punishment against women. And I, I definitely see that argument for that era of slashers. And I think Halloween 2018 does the smart thing of, well, look, we're not going to, you know, not have women be victims in this like that. Then that would be its own kind of unfair. But we're going to frame the violence in a way that's that's almost I don't want to say more artful, but almost in a way that feels more classical and that. We're not going to show you it, so it actually makes the violence worse because you have to imagine it. And whatever you come up with is going to be way more disturbing than any effects gag that we come up with. Like, not not seeing the, the female podcaster get strangled, it's like, well, you're becoming Michael Myers in that instance because you are seeing him do that. 
in your head. You're killing her in a way. And that's more disturbing and kind of <laughs> gleefully evil um, to do to an audience. And and I, I think, it again, again, it's it's one of the things that kind of sets this movie apart from the original um, is that it, it kind of it, it brings you into the killings in a incredibly brutal way. And I think that was even one of John Carpenter's notes to David Gordon Green was like, if you're going to do this, make it relentless. Don't hold back. And and I think that that's up there on the screen. It's certainly there every step of the way. I totally agree. And it's what makes this movie a really good sequel, too. And I don't recall what I necessarily rated it after I watched it. I think it was in the three, three and a half out of five range. And it's one of those things where I could definitely see myself rewatching this just to sort of have it sink in a little more and maybe that rating will bump up over time because you don't necessarily catch everything the first time you watch something. And I think with horror, that's particularly true with a franchise like this or, you know, Freddy, Jason, what have you, because of how meta these sequels can get. And you mentioned a few things earlier and I'd probably have to watch the original and then immediately watch this one and do a back-to-back thing just so I can sort of wrap my head around everything they actually accomplished with this movie. Yeah, I think it's in years going to be assessed as something truly miraculous because it is a great companion piece to the original, but it does the envious and nigh impossible task of just being its own thing. Like, obviously, seeing the original movie and having that context enriches Halloween 2018. But, you know, I, I when when I went to see it in the theater, uh, I took my girlfriend and she she hates horror movies. She does not like being scared. We didn't watch the original one. She's like, I kind of know, like, Michael Myers is a guy in a mask and he kills people. That was about it. And we came out and, you know, I asked her about it and said, you know, what, what did she think? She was like, I... I hated it because it was a horror movie and it scared me. But even I have to admit that it's a it's a really good movie. Um, and I asked her, I was like, was not seeing the original. Did you? She was like, no, I felt that they presented everything they needed to. I understood Lori's character arc and where she was coming from and why she was reacting the way she was without seeing the first one. And that was really kind of a testament to me that, yes, this really works. Like it's. Yeah. It's it's something that you don't have to have the original to have this stand on its own two legs. And and even though, you know, the, the movie did incredible business and has been fairly well regarded critically, I think as the years go on and it starts to get amalgamated into the franchise as a larger whole, it's only going to rise in appreciation at at seeing like, wow, it's incredible that they were able to do this and check all the boxes that everybody wants or thinks they want from a Halloween sequel while also really treating the material with a level of maturity that I don't really think has ever been done before in the franchise. Absolutely. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we dive into the ending and the quote-unquote post-credits scene specifically yeah uh i think the only other thing i have to say and this is 
again, a, uh, a fun little nod to people who love the first movie and also a mission statement is the opening credits in which a rotted pumpkin rises up and becomes lit again. And of course, it's a reference to the the opening credits of the original film. When it popped up, I just started laughing because it's just this dead rotted pumpkin. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> that's fun. I, I, and then when it started raising up, I'm like, this is brilliant. This is such a, a stylistic thing to, to, to make a point like, Hey, this has been dead and it's coming back and we're really taking this seriously. So, so I love that. And the only other thing I, I mentioned it lightly, but I really have to praise it is uh, getting John Carpenter back to do this score. This score is so good. Yeah. And and I was surprised because it I was afraid it was going to feel kind of pastiche, like it was just a score that jumped out of 1978 and they plunked it into this movie and that it was going to rely a whole bunch on the very uh famous Halloween theme. It's not really that. It's it's got a modern slant to it, but doesn't have the kind of I think orchestral bombast that we expect from you know, wide release uh, films. It it feels again, much like the movie, an amazing balance of classic and doing its own thing. Uh, so th- that, that would be it as far as other things to touch on before we get into the bananas ending of this movie. <laughs> yeah. So to set the scene, you have this death trap of a house that Laurie has set up her <laughs> daughter so and her granddaughter end up there, and the son-in-law as well, which that does not go so well for him. Well, poor, poor Toby Huss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you have all of these things going on in the house, and I really love the set for this because they paid so much attention to the details. You have the room that's like full of mannequins and stuff, and mm-hmm. you have even outside where she does her target practice and everything like that, the entire kitchen island just moving and revealing this basement room that is essentially a safe room. And just the fact that you could tell this house was very lived in, but not lived in in the sense that, you know, it was an enjoyable life. (laughs) So you just have all of this personality coming out of this house and it reflects everything that Laurie has been through over these years. And to have Michael end up at that house the way she planned it, and then to have that post credit scene where you're like, oh no, how, no, (laughs) why? I think one of the most important things in action cinematography when i say action i don't mean like the genre i mean actual action yeah uh and and this and this is kind of maybe the most important for horror is geography it's really important for you to understand where characters are in a space and what's surrounding them where they're going where they can't go in order to make us feel the tension of the scene there there's so many movies that you can that you can point to in the filmmaking and saying like, I don't understand where characters are in relation to each other, where the danger is coming from. And what's so great about Laurie's house is we see enough of it that like you said, thematically we understand it. It represents 
her building this kind of fortress unto herself right. um, and preparing for this. But as the movie progresses and we start to see flashbacks and, and they keep going back to the house, we we reveal it little by little. And during that final sequence, it's, you know, it's revealed that Lori or I think they show it a little bit earlier in the movie, but she will basically clear rooms. She goes into a room, checks it out. And once it's done, she pushes a button and a metal shutter shuts it off. I'm like, OK, that part of the geography is gone now. So we're limiting ourselves closer and closer to uh, wherever her final conflict is going to to go down. And and I love that. That's so smart in putting us in her shoes during that final uh, final conflict is like I, I really do feel like I can walk through that house and understand where everything is and where I need to go. And then, yes, it, <laughs> then the uh, the actual ending and the revelation, uh, there's a couple just I, I there's no other way to describe it. It's just badass moments at mm-hmm. the end here in which Judy Greer and her daughter are down in the the basement, which is like this safe room gun locker. And she's crying. She's like, I can't. She's holding the her gun that she had as a kid. And she's like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And immediately when Michael steps into the frame, it was an act. And she's like, gotcha. And that switch is so great. And then to have Lori be the one at the end who pops out of the shadows and says, happy Halloween, Michael. It's like, oh, man, you want to talk about a crowd-pleasing succession of moments. I just got chills thinking about it again. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so cool and triumphant. And you're like, yes, like as as much as so many of these kind of horror movies, like you said, people end up fixating on the killers as kind of the the figureheads and really making the merchandising and, and the the passion around these movies about them. This is a moment where in the end you're like, yeah, kill Michael, like get him. Like it's it's so rousing. Um and then, of course, the big reveal that the safe room is not a safe room at all, that it's that it's been this trap. Uh, so good. So I love this script so much. I feel like this is something that sequels should all aspire to, in a sense, especially in the horror genre, because you have a lot of horror movies that can be really, really bad. And the franchise will still live on. When that happens, especially if it's something as big as Halloween. Mm -hmm. And this just so perfectly embodies everything about the town, the characters, the killer, to the point where I feel like the way they did this, there was no way it was going to be a total flop. It feels crystallized. Like they, they got the most cut from diamond versions of these characters. And they were like, as long as we nail that. Will we? Th- there's a confidence to the we're going to be able to deliver all the stuff that the, you know, Friday night date night crowd wants, which is ooh, here's here's really good crafted jump scares and a spooky atmosphere and you know vicious kills and stuff. We've got all that covered. What we need to focus on is making sure Lori and Michael as opposing forces work. And and of course the the very ending of this movie. Uh, in which she's trapped Michael and decides to blow the whole place up. And we get that ambiguous ending cut of seeing him in the basement and then cutting back and he's gone, which is of course a, a reference to the original movie in which he is 
we think he's dead and he escapes and that's it. He's out there. Yeah. I love the ending of the 1978 Halloween. I think it might be my favorite horror movie ending of all time. But what I like about the 2018 version is they do that. They're like, oh, he he could still be out there. You'll never know. But it doesn't end on that because this movie isn't about Michael. Mm-hmm. It's about it's about Lori and her family and the image of them getting you know picked up in this truck and driven away and the camera pans down to Michael's knife which Lori's granddaughter took from him and used against him to to you know eventually drive him into the cellar ending on that image a freeze frame on that image is again another mission statement a, a saying like this is not about Michael it's about this thing that has happened to these women and how they're carrying it with them and they're all carrying it in different ways. But the most important thing is at the end of the movie, even though they have this, this horrible thing, that's always going to inform some part of their lives. They're dealing with it together and they're, they're learning to use this trauma as a weapon. And I think that's so I, I'll say it again. I think the maturity of that message is something that was so refreshing to see in what could very easily be a by-the-numbers fun slasher movie. Right. I loved that. I totally agree. It's one of those things where you have to appreciate the amount of time and effort that went into this and all of the details that came out of it because, like you said, those women are handling the trauma in different ways, but now they're sort of all using it as a defense mechanism in the end. You know, Allison had to run away from Michael after he killed her friend and she just kept running and running and running. (laughs) And then you see Judy Greer's character. She freaks out because her daughter hasn't come home and you get these things all happening simultaneously and you see how each of them is able to handle it. And in the end, they have to come together to defend themselves. And with the post credit scene of just the heavy breathing from Michael, it's like, okay, yes, he could still be breathing, but that doesn't mean he's necessarily going to make it out alive, even though they want us to believe that. So one of the last things I want to wrap up with here is what's next for the Halloween franchise? Do you think they'd leave it off on this note? Or do you think they're sort of going to (laughs) milk it knowing how successful this one was? And I know with Blumhouse, that was a bit of a concern with Get Out because of how well it did. Mm -hmm. It's like, do we need a Get Out 2? Can you really capture this again? And even though the 2018 Halloween is a sequel... I don't know if we need more than that. I would be perfectly content with them leaving it where they did and us sort of just not knowing because, you know, Lori has aged a lot over the last 40 years and it's safe to assume that Michael has as well. So how long can you really keep this up or does Michael go find himself a protege or something like that, you know, which I don't think that would be as entertaining in a horror film to have this protege suddenly come up, you know, 40 plus years later. Well, I I can tell you right now, fans of the series would immediately discount that because they, you know, don't like replacements. Um, You know, you always want to leave the audience on a high note. And and Halloween 2018 is such a high note for the franchise, for just the horror genre, for the slasher genre. 
And the only thing that gives me interest in a sequel is that Danny McBride and David Gordon Green originally pitched this as two movies. And they said, like, we have a two movie arc that we can do. And they were originally going to do that. But then they scaled things back and were like, we don't know, because if we mess up this first one, we're kind of stuck with, you know, story threads and stuff the way that they have it set up to where, you know, if we don't get to make the second one, it's going to feel very um, disappointing because much like the first Halloween, you know, the first Halloween wasn't set up for any kind of sequels or anything. It was just a another kind of statement of you can't you can't kill evil. You can't kill the boogeyman. He's always going to be there somewhere lurking. And while this movie ends on a similar note, uh, it's also, like I said, making that that kind of appraisal of what this means to the women that it, that it's affected. You know, I'm I'm almost certain that a sequel will manifest because of it, it, its success. I, I just I know the cynicism of Hollywood producers and they never want to let a thing sit uh, for too long if they can make another buck off of it but i don't i don't know like i don't know where you kind of go thematically because story-wise they're trying to create a construct of like what's laurie and and her family up to now that's not what it would interest me as much as what halloween 2018 ended up exploring with its characters in a in a much bigger sense about like this is a movie about trauma this is a, a movie about like that. that's what's crazy to me is that Halloween 2018 is a movie about something yeah <laughs> it's not just a horror slasher flick <laughs> yeah like it has real deeper concerns on its mind and that's that's my jumping off point to a sequel it's like well if if this movie was about trauma and how it continues to affect generations down the line now that those characters have been confronted with that trauma and have learned like yes this isn't something we can ignore or something that we can you know pass off as inconsequential what's the thematic through line of well what do you do now that you know that that trauma is out like does do do judy greer and 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 her daughter become like Lori? like this feels it feels triumphant for Lori, not in a sense that oh she beat michael myers it's it's triumphant in a sense that her and her family now understand one another completely because they've all gone through the same experience and i i don't know where you go with that it it is at a point where well you know the the people behind this hit a home run in, in in my opinion and if they all come back then I'm I have faith in them from you know just what I've seen, but man, it just feels like a really really tough nut to crack following this up because if if this this won't be the last Halloween movie, we'll get another one in some way shape or form, right? But if this was the last one, I'm like I don't think you could ask for a better you know exit to the story. I would love to know what exactly they ended up pitching for the two movie story arc there because that's something that I feel like you know as film nerds and myself just sort of becoming more of one lately I've 
always been curious about the process of how these films are made. And just to know now that there were two movies in someone's head, <laughs> it, it's sort of like, oh, man, I wish I could hear that story. And maybe one day we will get it. Maybe a podcast that is not mine <laughs> will get that story <laughs> and we can all listen to it. But I do agree with you that this just feels like such a good ending even if it is open-ended, because I think that gives the fans a chance to wonder what if or what happened. And you sort of get all of these conversations around movies like this. And I don't know if horror fan fiction is necessarily a thing. I know it's really big for comics and anime and things like that, but mm -hmm. fans can sort of just go write their own ending to the story and play around with these ideas. And I think that's something that is very exciting about fandoms in general. And Halloween certainly has that cult fan group. Oh, yeah. And I really think this movie is only going to not only energize the support for this franchise that there already is, but this is a movie that is going to create a new generation Absolutely. of people. And and that's in, in the long run of things. That's the best thing you can hope for it, with some kind of remake or, or sequel is that it not only speaks to the people that have been there with it for a long time, but it captures a new audience. And I know in my experience of seeing this, you know, when we went and saw it in the theater, I'm like, there are people here who are very young. And I would venture that this is the first Halloween movie they'll ever see. And I hope for nothing more than that means that they'll start tracking it down, that somebody will make the the awful mistake that I've done, which is seeing all of the Halloween sequels multiple times. Um, but I want that like that. The idea that that will passed down because of a movie as good as Halloween 2018 is so encouraging. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a fantastic note to wrap this up on. And I will be sure to keep you apprised of my Halloween movie watching habits here. Oh, yeah. I'm always here for it. Trust me. I've, I've, I've seen these movies more than anyone ever should. So <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to jump on again. And I am more than happy to have you as a regular guest on this podcast as well as chat cemetery i know we have a lot of horror to discuss so it's nice to have someone who really loves this genre to talk to and sort of just hash out these thoughts and ideas about the genre in general as well and you know drew i am sure i will have about 20 other movies to throw your way <laughs> soon now that i know i have you know this this person who loves horror so much and really likes to focus on it. I'm here for it. Awesome. Well, to our listeners, as always, thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.